0: Good evening church, I want to thank you for the opportunity to deliver this evening's sermon. So one of my favorite songs is called New Wine. Listen to these lyrics. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. I love the beginning of that song, and every time I hear those words, I imagine an ancient Middle Eastern Jesus in his tan robes pulled up to his thighs as he's in a wine press crushing grapes into new wine. And when I think about this process, there are three words that come to mind. Intimate, uncomfortable, and transformative. I want you to keep those three words in mind as we move to our passage. In Luke 5, 33 through 39, we see Jesus debating Jewish leaders. Now, in context, they're Pharisees and teachers of the law, but for our sake, let's just call the whole group Pharisees. And in order to understand big picture, kind of what's going on here, I want to give a quote to you from Richards and O'Brien on an idea that may be... Uh, We don't readily get from just reading the text. Richardson O'Brien says this in Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Jesus worked within the honor-shame system. In the ancient world, there was only so much honor to go around. It was a limited good. Everyone everyone was scrambling for more. Jesus' opponents understood this well. Public questions were never for information. If one wanted information, you asked privately, as we often see Jesus' disciples do. For example, Matthew 24, 3, and Mark 9, 28. But public questions were contests. The winner was determined by the audience who represented the community. If you silenced your opponent, you gained honor, and they lost honor. The Pharisees had been challenging Jesus publicly at least according to Luke 5:17 through 32 which is the context immediately following our main passage and every time they challenged him publicly they lost and when they lost they lost honor so whenever we come to Luke 5:33 through 39 understand that the Jewish leaders are trying to regain some of this lost honor if you would yes Luke 5:33 <coughs> Let's read the question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus. They said to him, John's disciples often pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Matter of fact, let me do this. Let's read that whole passage, which is what I tend to do with my my college folk. 33 through 39, Luke 5 Luke 5, 33 through 39. Luke 5, 33 through 39. This is what we read. And they, the Pharisees, said to him, The disciples of John fast, and, uh, fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and put it on an old garment, and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, The old is good. So when we come to verse 33, this is what we see. The Pharisees are trying to regain lost honor by asking questions in the form of a statement. Jesus' followers didn't adhere to the lifestyle and the regulations of the Pharisees. Even John the Baptizer fasted and prayed as observed by the Pharisees. Jesus' followers, however, were eating and drinking freely. What's interesting is that when it comes to actual Fasting, the day of atonement, was what was required. We see this in Leviticus sixteen twenty nine through 34. Fasting usually was one day, but it could be more than one day. It could be three days or a week. When we look into Scripture, we also see that fasting was done during the day and ended at dusk. We see that happening in Scripture. We also see that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus consumed nothing during their 40-day fasts. But these were considered unusual and highly significant religious events. The Pharisees fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. As we understand, fasting is associated with religious sorrow, with religious mourning. And by the time of the Pharisees, the Pharisees began teaching that you can actually gain honor from God by the amount of time that you fast and how many times you fast. It's interesting that they say, uh, the Pharisees fast, John's disciples fast, but yours, what does yours do, Jesus? Yours go about eating and drinking, and eating and drinking is not associated with sorrow and mourning, what is is it associated with? Joy and celebration. So whenever they ask Jesus this question, they're actually challenging the religious piety, the reverence and self-denial of Jesus. And in front of their followers, in front of Jesus' followers, essentially what they're saying is, hey, This is your master, right? This is your teacher, right? Is he even pious, reverential? Is he a truly devoted Jew? And they're asking Jesus, hey, teacher, if you were a pious, reverential, and truly devoted Jew like us, wouldn't you be following the established program for making good Jews? So understand, when they pose this question to Jesus, it is a challenge to Jesus as a teacher. Let's look at verse 34 through 35, please. Jesus' responds. he answers, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fa- uh, fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Jesus' incarnation is marked by joy, not sorrow. Hence, he gives the bridegroom metaphor. Think about it. You're at a wedding, and your boy's about to get married. It's not time for, for fasting. It's time to party. Eventually, he's going to get married. He's going to be gone. Then you can start mourning. Then you can start saying, man, I wish my boy was still around. So it's time to celebrate. And that is Jesus's point of his bridegroom metaphor. Interestingly, the bridegroom metaphor represents the messianic age, the age of Jesus, which was from his incarnation to today into eternity, at least until he returns, depending upon uh, your thought on that. Think about these passages Isaiah uh, 54, 5 through 6, Isaiah 62, 4 through 5, and Hosea 2, 16 through 25. In those passages, God is speaking through prophets, and He's talking about how that Jews, y'all are currently in captivity. When I bring you out, it will be a time of celebration, and He uses bridegroom metaphors to represent how that it will be a time when Messiah is here. So Jesus is actually reflecting back to some Old Testament passages. In the metaphor, Jesus is the bridegroom, or what we today call the groom, and he is there with Israel. It's time to enjoy him while he's there. Even Jesus' call to repent, which at times demanded sober responses like weeping and lamenting and fasting, it was always done in a spirit of hopeful renewal. Jesus, is acknowledge, uh, Jesus acknowledges, however, that there is a place for fasting, but that sorrow and that mourning is to come later. And I think what he's talking about is his death. That is when the bridegroom would no longer be with them in the same sense that he's with them at this time. But right now, Jesus is there in Israel, and he is the good news for his followers. So what should his followers be doing? Celebrating. What should the Jews be doing? Celebrating. However, the Pharisees, who should be happy hearing Jesus' teachings and following the Christ, They were stuck in their old ways. They were stuck in their Jewish traditions. They were so satisfied with their old traditions, with their old institutions, that they don't even see the need to celebrate the newness Jesus brings. Fasting, according to them, supposedly got you closer to God. But the Pharisees, with all their fasting, were moving further and further away from God. And yet the disciples of Jesus, with all their quote-unquote partying, could actually touch God. Let's look at the last part of this passage and after that we'll make some applications and then the sermon will be yours. When we come to 36 through 39, Jesus adds on top of his comments uh, two parables about the old and the new. He told them this parable, no one tears a piece of Of uh, Tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one Otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old And no one pours new wine into old wineskins Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins And no one after drinking the old wants the new for they say the old is better Jesus' parable here contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant As Chris often says, a parable is a mini-story that explains a spiritual truth. Both parables here are explaining something about the new being put into something old. The parables stress how that Jesus' new covenant is incompatible with Moses' old covenant when the new covenant is forced into the old covenant by man-made Jewish traditions. Let's think about these parables in a little bit more depth. The first parable is about old cloth that has torn and a piece of new cloth is sewn or patched into it. The old cloth has shrunken from years of use and washing. It's dried out. It's inflexible. But the new patch from new cloth that's sewn into it, it can shrink when it's washed. It still has many, many years of use. However, if it gets sewn into the old And it goes through this process of being used and being washed, then the threads will tear both the old cloth and the new patch, destroying both. The second parable is about new wine poured into old wineskins. Wineskins are leather containers that start off soft and flexible, and as they grow old, they become dry and brittle. New wine that is unfermented is poured into the old wine or into the old wineskins. And the new wine, over time, will become fermented. And in doing so, it will expand inside of the old wineskins, causing the old wineskins to crack and break, losing both the wine and the wineskin. Jesus provides a solution, however, in the parable. Only pour new wine, where? Into new wineskins. I want to say this. From this parable, we shouldn't draw too sharp a dualistic line between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. At this point right now, the Old Covenant isn't obsolete. It isn't outmoded. It has yet to be replaced. And the New Covenant is yet to become supreme. There hasn't been a death of a testator. Jesus isn't advocating here the ditching of the old clothes or the old wineskins. In picturing the results of pouring new wine into old wineskins, he actually laments the damaged wineskins, as much as he laments losing the wine. (laughs) He allows old wine in new wineskins, but he doesn't allow new wine into old wineskins. In fact, when we look at a certain passage a little bit later, he preserves and renews things of the old wineskin, of the old covenant, if you will, through creating and legislating the new covenant. Jesus' parables have the same basic message, which is this: Jesus will be and initiate the new covenant between man and God. Pharisees can't force the new covenant into the old into the old, used-up structure of rigid Judaism. Furthermore, adding the new covenant, or the New covenant teachings to the old covenant would result in more disobedience to the law, not less. The new covenant isn't just a patch that can be added to the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant, with its constraints, can't contain the New Covenant. What we see is this idea that the New Covenant is going to bring a kind of freedom that does not work under the Old Covenant. The hearts of New Covenant people are going to be transformed to desire obedience, and that's one of the principles here on why uh, the New Covenant will allow freedom. Unlike the Old Covenant where you are born a Jew, and so you're born into the Old Covenant, and then you must learn to have an obedient heart. So let's make three applications, and then, again, the lesson will be yours. Let's return to our three words, intimate, uncomfortable, and transforming. What can we gain from that little section, Luke 5, 36 through 39, is this. Here's one principle. One, becoming new wine is intimate, so be kind. Be kind. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, if you would, please turn there. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Hebrews 10, 23 through through 25. The Hebrews writer is writing, and he's talking about what is important in this intimate process of, of being new wine, of being poured into with the new covenant. And one thing that is absolutely essential is kindness. And, and my idea of kind, included in that idea, is this idea of being encouraging. In Hebrews 10, 23-25, this is what we read. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. When we think back to Luke 5, Jesus was teaching his followers to be new wine, squeezing out man-made Jewish traditions to help follow New Testament faith. Jesus' followers were on an intimate journey with him, and Jesus was their wine presser. The Pharisees sought to destroy this intimate process by asking snarky questions to publicly undermine Jesus' faith, Jesus' leadership and his teaching, and so his disciples' faith. They were trying to force Jesus' followers back into old wineskins. However, Jesus was more reverent and more pious than the Pharisees themselves. His teachings better helped his disciples devote their life to God than those Jewish traditions. We can say this on this point. New trends are happening uh, in churches today. Christians are wearing flip-flops and shorts to church. Churches are having more casual or celebratory Uh, church cultures, and questions arise as to the reverence and devotion of uh, such Christians. In fact, I think about growing up. Growing up, I grew up in a church where we sang during communion. And then I went to a school, and it was suggested that it was actually irreverent to sing during communion. Communion was a time of solemn remembrance, not joyful singing or celebration. The point is this. We mustn't question each other's devotion because of differences like these. Instead, we must accept Jesus' new covenant. Jesus' new covenant makes us devoted to God, not our specific uh, Christian tradition, if you will, not our specific traditions that, that we've adopted. But, of course, there are traditions that are, by necessity, connected to the new covenant. And those traditions that are connected to the new covenant, those are the, 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 tr- the traditions that actually help us be devoted to God. Let's look at our second thing that we can take home with us. Becoming new wine is uncomfortable But be joyful. Let's look at Philippians 1, 15 through 18. If you would, please turn there. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. As many of you biblical scholars know, uh, we're dealing with a letter from, from prison from Paul, and he's talking about joy. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. This is what we read. It is true that some preach Christ of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do it. The latter uh, do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does this matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. We see that Paul's joy did not come from external factors, Paul's joy came from the preaching of the gospel. He was happy that Christians were out sharing the gospel, living the gospel, even those who were doing it out of evil intentions. Let's bring it back to Luke 5. Christians, celebrate that Jesus is here with his bride, uh, with his bride, the church. Unlike the Pharisees and the Jewish traditions, Christians must rejoice. And I want to stress this. Christians must rejoice. You know, that's a non-negotiable. Christians must rejoice. There's nothing wrong with fasting, and we probably need to fast more. Uh, but it is anti-Christian for me to be a Christian who's never happy and never joyful about my faith. If I'm a Christian who's moping around, being irritated or irritable, being frustrated, complaining, critiquing, whining, grumbling, being negative, being discouraging, being unsupportive, these are actually anti-Christian attitudes that I cannot have if I'm considering myself a Christian, or if I want to consider myself a Christian. A joyful attitude, in fact, speaks volumes for whether I believe Jesus is here with me. Joy tells me that I really do believe I have hope in Jesus. Joy tells believers that I really will be with Jesus in heaven. Joy tells the world that it needs the hopeful uh, happiness I have in Jesus. Now, As someone who's been through depression, I think I have some credibility on what I'm about to say, okay? I just wanna put that little warning there, this is it. If I am a Christian, and I'm finding that I am constantly not joyful, if I'm quote-unquote depressed, it may be the case that I need medication, or I need medical help, or I need counseling, that's true. But more often than not, before we even get to those questions, we need to ask a more fundamental question, and it's this have I really been committing myself to growing in Christ? Am I going to church and staying after to build friendships and community? Am I going to classes and having my faith challenged? Am I pouring into church life by servicing my brothers and sisters? Am I actually changing my habits, my values, and outlook on life to what Christ would have me to do? If I answer no to any one of these, then I need to deal with that first. And I will probably see an increase in my joy as a Christian by answering those questions affirmatively and practicing those in my life. And let's get to our last point, please. Becoming new one is transformative, so be free. Look at Colossians 2, 16 through 19 with me. We're again looking at the Apostle Paul. Colossians 2, 16 through 19. Paul says this. Therefore... Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. There's more there, but for time's sake, uh, let's just say, if you want to read it, it's Colossians 2:16 through 19. That's the whole kind of thought there. The Pharisees were the ultra-conservative pastors of Israel, they created new laws that God never imposed on Jews. Their tradition was to fast twice a week, and they taught that fasting actually brought God's favor. As legalists, they legislated where God left people. Uh, they legislated where God left his people free. In other words, they were old wine. As someone who believes in biblical conservatism, I say this: there is a time to conserve, and there is a time to change. Biblical traditions, all Christians must have, must be conserved. Those are our dogmas. Those are the things that define the gospel. Those are the the things that define us as Christians. But man-made traditions aren't themselves biblical traditions. If man-made traditions cause us to actually disregard biblical traditions, which is what the Pharisees were experiencing, their man-made traditions were causing them to actually go against, discourage, oppose biblical traditions, then we must be more committed, uh, we must be more committed to the truth of the Bible than to our personal preferences or our own personal doctrines that have no biblical basis. And we must be transformed by the teachings of Jesus or die spiritually. Those are our only two options. We either grow in Christ or we die spiritually. There are no other options. Um, New Christian freedoms can't be enclosed in this Jewish or Pharisaical kind of rigid religious rules. Many don't prefer our structure of Christianity. Many of us are unwilling to embrace new forms of relating to God. Many may want to convert people to their church tradition instead of Christ. But we must keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Christ. We must keep our traditions Unlike the Pharisees, we must keep our traditions that are moving us towards God, keeping us stable in Christ, that is actually propping up Jesus and not trying to tear down Jesus. As we come to the close of our lesson, new wine, we have to ask ourselves, are we being new wine? Are we being new wine? Are we having an intimate relationship with Jesus? Are we allowing ourselves to be uncomfortable at times in order to maintain our relationship with Jesus? Are we being transformed by the teachings of Jesus and by our relationship with him? If not, then we need to go home, look in the mirror, and change. If we are, then we need to continue building up and spread, that, uh, and spread what we're doing right to others. It's a part of being a part of the Christian community. With that said, um, that's our lesson. uh, And I I suppose we enjoy, or it's a tradition here, to extend an invitation to anyone who wants to respond to the gospel. If there's anybody here who is struggling with their faith, uh, they need prayers of the church, this is a time for you to come forward. If you're someone who's actually been studying and you're ready to be a disciple and put on Christ in baptism, then this is a time for you to just come forward as we'll make that profession before the church. With that said, um, if you would, let's stand and let's sing.